This morning we're going to be in Psalm 51, a sermon uh, that I've called Blind Spots. How many of you remember learning to drive? Any of you remember that? How many of you remember the, you can remember the name of your driver's ed instructor? Mine was Mr. O'Brien. <laughs> Mr. O'Brien, myself, and a guy named Matt Babcock. We were driving together, learning together how to drive. It was about this time of year. It was definitely during the winter time. And I was glad I took driver's ed during the winter time because he would take us out on icy parking lots. And, um, and it, it was fun, right? He would, he would tell us to floor the gas and then hit the brakes and then just try and, you know, learn how to gain control of a car and a skid and everything. And, and I'm grateful for all those lessons that I was taught. I remember a lot of them. I remember one of them he taught us thinking about blind spots. I remember him telling us, you know, when you're merging onto the highway that uh, there's, well, I wasn't going to go to that picture yet, but there's a, there's a picture. You can't really see it. These lights are kind of washing it out a little bit. But this is a truck I was behind this week. Um, there you go. Thank you. Truck I was behind this week. I didn't take this picture. You're not supposed to take pictures when you're driving. Um, <laughs> but I was behind a truck this week that had these signs on it. It was the first time I ever saw it. So I came back and Googled it. And I, as I figured, I wasn't the only person to ever see this sign. And it said, passing side and suicide. Um, <laughs> And it reminded me of this message of blind spot, right? And the reason it says that is because they don't want you to end up like this car, which is what I I suppose, I've never driven an 18-wheeler, but I'm guessing he didn't see that car or he just was having a really bad day. And he did see that car and he just kept on going. Um, But blind spot, I remember Mr. O'Brien telling us about... um, telling us about the blind spot. And until you've sat in the driver's seat, those of you who are kids here and you haven't learned to drive yet, until you've sat in that driver's seat, you don't really realize that blind spot that's there, right? You don't really realize that when you're sitting in that driver's seat to your immediate left, not too far back, there's a whole section that none of your mirrors see and that you don't know what is there unless you intentionally turn around and try to find it. And so, you know, he would tell us, you're coming onto the highway, make sure you look two and three times. And over the years, I've tried to remember that, though I've got to be honest, there's been times where I've pulled onto the highway and seen an 18 wheeler just shoo, and be like, oh, blind spot. You know, you don't, you're just yielding on in these on-ramps that are extremely short in our part of the country, uh, and sometimes you miss it. We've got blind spots in our lives. It doesn't just happen on the roads, happens in other places, happens even when we're walking these days. Some of us, when we're talking with our thumbs, instead of with our mouths. So there's places that have installed texting and no texting lanes on the sidewalk. You know, so you can walk in here and text. And so I guess the idea is that if you're texting and you just, if you walk into other people who are texting, you just deserve it, I guess, is the, is the idea. Um, but uh, texting and non-text, some, some places have gone even far enough to say staircases, uh, you know, uh, Utah University, te- walk, run, text. So figure out which way you're, you're going. Um, we have, and the reason is because we get blind spots in our lives. Happens when we're driving. I guess it happens when we're walking. Um, but it happens in other places in life too. You've got blind spots and I do too. On a more serious note, 
It happens in our relationships with other people at times, right? Uh, we realize we're capable of having blind spots in our relationships often only when we are blindsided with someone telling us something that we didn't even realize or see. It can happen in a marriage when you think everything's going great and suddenly one morning you wake up and there's a note that lets you know it's not going as great as you thought it was. It can happen in a friendship, in a relationship. You know, you, you didn't even see it coming. But one of your friends says, you know, when you, when you joke with me about those things, you know, about my weight or about my height or about my looks or about my accent or about my, whatever it is, well, that, that really hurts. And you didn't even, and you would say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't intend it that way. And you realize you had a complete blind spot to pain you were causing in a relationship. Uh, Pastor uh, Tim Keller tells a story of early on in his marriage that really brings this out and brings this to light. He was talking about he and his wife Kathy when they first moved to New York City to start Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And when they did, he said to Kathy, you know, give me three years, three years of long hours because it's going to take, to get this church underway, I know what it's going to take, and it's going to take long hours, and it's going to take a lot of work. Give me three years of working long hours, putting them into the church, and then we'll get to a more, you know, reasonable schedule. And so she agreed. Kathy agreed she would do that. Three years came, though, and he said, give me a few more months. And give me a few, because give me a few more months. And, and she kept being gracious and agreeing but uh, at some point, she realized the harm that was coming to the family. And so Pastor Tim Keller tells the story of one day. It says, he says, I came home from work. And it was a nice day outside. And the balcony door to their apartment in New York City was open. And so he came in. And in another couple seconds after coming in, he heard the sound of what sounded like a plate smashing. And a couple seconds later, he heard another one. So he walks out on the balcony and he sees his wife, Kathy, sitting on the balcony with a hammer and a stack of their wedding china. And she is smashing the plates with a hammer. And he says, what are you doing? She looked up and said, you aren't listening to me. You don't realize that if you keep working these hours, you're going to destroy this family and I don't know how to get through to you. You aren't seeing how serious this is. This is what you're doing. And she brought the hammer down on another plate and smashed it. Pastor Tim Keller says he sat down trembling. He had thought she snapped. He says, I'm listening, I'm listening. And as we talked, it became clear that she was intense and laser focused. She was not enraged or out of control emotionally. She spoke calmly but forcefully. The arguments were the same they were the months before, but I realized I had been deluded and I didn't see it. There would never be a convenient time to slow down. There would never be a good time to cut back. And so they had this conversation. They, they, he listened, they hugged. And then uh, Pastor Tim Keller says, finally I inquired, when I first came out here, I thought you were having an emotional meltdown. How did you get control of yourself so fast? Kathy said with a grin, it was no meltdown. Do you see these three saucers I smashed? He nodded. She said, I have no cups for them. The cups broke years ago. I had three saucers to spare, and I'm glad you sat down before I had to break any more. 
sometimes it takes something severe to get our attention because we got blind spots in our lives and we need something to get our attention. It happens in our lives. I remember a couple times when it happened in my life. Maybe you can remember times when it happened in your life. I remember when I was younger and uh, my mom was a little bit exasperated with my behavior. I know that's hard for you to imagine now. Um, <laughs> There were times where I was apparently difficult to deal with, uh, especially in how I related to my sisters. Uh, and so one time, particularly, I remember my mom saying to me in a, in a fit of, I guess, not knowing what else to say. She said, you know what? You treat your friends better than you treat your family. And I don't remember what I responded to in that moment or, or, or what my response was. I really don't know what happened in, immediately in that moment. But I know not long after that 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 stuck with me because I thought, she's right and that's wrong. And that stuck with me because I thought, there's a blind spot there that shouldn't be happening. And in life, unless someone tells us that, sometimes we miss it. I remember later in life when I was... Um, Years down the road, married uh, to Wendy, and one of my friends challenged me to go home and ask my wife how she's doing and if she's happy at our marriage. And I said, I don't even need to do that. Things are great. So I went home and asked Wendy, things are great, right? How are we doing? And she snapped back without even a second's notice that I feel like a single parent sometimes. And I love the work we're doing at church, and I love all that's going on, but I feel like a single parent sometimes. And in that moment, I realized I had a blind spot that I didn't even know was there. And it happens in our lives. It happens in our relationships. But here's the question I want to ask you this morning. If it can happen when we drive, and if it can happen with people in our lives, then can't it also happen with God? Have you ever thought that maybe you have a blind spot when it comes to your relationship with God? Is it possible that there might be something that I would not see that would get in my relationship with God? Is it possible that there might be things in my life that might be hurtful to God that I don't even realize? And the truth is, is if it can happen with people in my life that I can see in my life and I have a relationship with, then certainly it can happen in my relationship with the God I can't see. In the book of John, he writes, uh, he, he writes, and we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, and he says, he's talking about love, and he says, you know, if you, can, uh, if you can't love the brother that you can see, how can you say that you love the God that you cannot see? I would just turn that around a little and say, if you can hurt unwillingly the people you can see in your life, then I would submit that it's at least possible that we might hurt unwittingly the God we cannot see. That at times we might have blind spots when it comes to our relationship with God. We might have spiritual blind spots the questions that come up then are how do you discover your blind spots and what do you do when you find out you have one? How do you discover? You know, one of the really only ways to discover a blind spot is with external help. When you're in a car, some of these new cars, you know, you, can, you pull onto the highway or you try and change lanes and they start beeping to let you know that there is something in your blind spot. There's a technological way to let you know. 
We've had this in my car for years, just without a computer. It's called my wife. <laughs> Maybe you have one of these too. You have this in your car. I didn't need, you know. You know, we'll be driving along and watch out. And to be honest, usually a lot of times I'm like glad she told me because maybe I didn't see it, but I can't tell her that. (laughs) We need some time, we need something on the outside, an external thing to tell us about our blind spots. External things help us to see them. There's a story that Dan and Chip Heath in their book Made to Stick talk about a physician His name is Dr. Leon Bender, and he worked at a hospital that was coming up for reaccreditation. And he was concerned because one of the things that was going on in his hospital that he knew was going to be a problem for the accreditation was the percentage of doctors that were not washing their hands regularly. And according to get accreditation, you need to have a minimum of 90% always washing their hands regularly, and his hospital was about 80%. He actually went on a cruise ship and he realized that the people on the cruise ship were more conscientious about washing their hands than the doctors at the hospital he worked with. And so he had to come up with a way to bring this to her attention because they had a blind spot. So here's what he did. After lunch, he gathered about 20 physicians and he asked them to put their fingers into Petri dishes Uh, that had a culture in them that would grow whatever was on their hands. And then they took photos of these and they emailed them out. And what they saw were their hands were covered in gobs of bacteria. Imagine one of the doctors realizing that your own hands, the same hands that would examine a patient later in the day, not to mention the same hands you just used to eat a turkey sandwich, were harboring an army of microcosms. And it was revolting, and here's what happened. They took the pictures, they distributed them. They even made the grossest one the screensaver for the hospital uh, uh, computers. And you know what happened? Their hand-washing rate went near 100% at that point. Because they had a blind spot that they didn't see, that they needed external evidence to kind of bring it to their attention. It happens in our relationships with people, but it also happens in our relationships with God that we often need something external to bring it to our attention that we have a blind spot. There's a few ways that that happens. One way is reading your Bible. You know, every year we hand out a Bible plan, and you'll hear us often talk about the importance of reading Scripture. It's not just because we want you to read your Bible and not just because we think you have a lot of time on your hands. It's because we feel like when you read the Word of God, It's not about reading your Bible. It's about putting yourself in a position where the Bible and God's word can read you. It's about putting yourself in a position where when I'm reading God's word, I am opening myself up to what God has to say to me. That God, there might be something I haven't been thinking about, I haven't been considering, and all of a sudden I open the word of God that morning and I think it's just per chance that's the Bible reading I have today, and yet God in his Holy Spirit has providentially ordained that I would be reading that text that day and it speaks to me and I see and I feel convicted and I see that God has revealed a blind spot to me. The Bible is one of the ways that does that. The Holy Spirit is another way. The, the, uh, the Bible tells us that when we begin to follow Christ, that God puts his Holy Spirit within us, and one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. 
And so there are times where God's Holy Spirit will come to you and it will convict you of that sin. Another way is through the words of another person. Maybe from a platform like this on a day like this, or maybe through an individual conversation of someone in your life that talks with you and confronts you and convicts you on something. This last one is exactly the way it happened for the writer of Psalm 51, who had one of his blind spots revealed. The writer of Psalm 51 is King David, and it is his response to having been called out regarding a sin in his life that he was not seeing or not treating with the seriousness that was needed. Either way, it was a blind spot for David. His writing in Psalm 51 is very instructive for us as we answer the second question of how do we deal with something once it's been discovered. But first, let's look at the exact moment when David was confronted with his spiritual blind spot. And that account is actually in Psalm, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 12. I don't have it on the screen for you this morning. I just want to read it to you because I want you to experience it somewhat the way that David might have experienced it, which was just hearing it spoken. Here's what was going on with David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't know the story of David, king at the time, king of Israel, here's what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It gives the account of him um, committing adultery with another man's wife and then murdering, having that woman's husband murdered and killed and then marrying that woman and taking her as his own wife. And he had done this, and he had done everything he could to cover it up. But God sees, and God saw, and God in his grace sent a man named Nathan to David to confront him on a blind spot that he had. And so Second Samuel chapter 12, actually I'll read you the last part of chapter 11 ends with this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Then it says this, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. See, sometimes God sends people into our lives to reveal a blind spot that we have. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and he grew up, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal For the traveler who had come to him, instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. And then he goes on to tell David and recount exactly what he did 
so that David would know that what he did may have been hidden from the eyes of some people, but it was not hidden from the eyes of God. David's blindsided. He's been so involved trying to cover up his sin and hide it from other people that he had completely neglected his sin against God. He had been in full cover-up mode, doing everything he could to protect his reputation, concerned about what other people thought, and completely ignoring what God saw. His efforts were fully based on dealing with the physical and relational consequences of what he had done, that he was blind to the spiritual impact of his actions. We might think, David, how could you be so stupid? But this can easily happen to us. When we hurt someone, if they don't know about it, sometimes all of our effort goes to keeping them from finding out about it. And we try and keep them. And we may rationalize it and think, well, we're keeping them from the pain and we don't want to hurt them. But all of our effort goes into keeping them from finding out about it. If they find out about it, then all of our effort often goes into trying to make it right. In fact, we'll say to them, what can I do to make this right? This will never happen again. And all of our effort and all of our energy goes into that. We make promises that it will never happen again. We do everything we can to rid ourselves of the guilt feeling we have. And many people will tell you that if you can make it right with other people and you can get rid of your feelings of guilt, then you've actually gotten rid of your guilt. Question is, is that really what the Bible says? What we miss and what David missed was that there is a spiritual component to what we had done, and that every action against another person is ultimately an action against God. Ultimately, every action against another person is against the God who made that person. When you lie, when I lie, we've not simply been dishonest with another person. We have somehow despised and mocked the God who is truth, and we've offended the God of truth. Nathan, sent by God, reminded David there was a spiritual component to his sin that he had not dealt with. If you sinned against another person, I would ask you today, have you dealt with the spiritual component of that sin? Maybe you've gone and done everything you can to make it right with another person, to make it right with another person. You've asked their forgiveness, they've given their forgiveness. And from that point on, sometimes we can feel like we're good. But there's a spiritual component, Nathan says. There's a spiritual component, the Bible says, that we have not only offended that person, we have also created space in our relationship with God that needs to be dealt with. The question comes, how do we deal with the issue of a spiritual blind spot once we've been made aware of it? So you realize that your sin against another person all of a sudden is not just a sin against them, it's also a sin against the God who made them. It's not just a sin against some kind of law, it's also against a sin against the lawgiver. But what do I do about that? I know what to do when it comes to another person. What do I do when it comes to God? Well, verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, David gives a short answer. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's kind of the summary of his response. But Psalm chapter 51 really kind of 
plays out exactly what his response was and what that looked like. This is probably the most common passage in all of Scripture when it comes to repentance. It's probably the model that many people would use of what it looks like when we have offended a holy God, what our response should be. David's words in Psalm 51 are his response to the sin that he had committed. And here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from my blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. The bulls, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is perhaps the clearest and most succinct passage in all of Scripture describing what it looks like to repent before God. When we're blindsided with something in our spiritual blind spot, we have to make a choice on what to do with it. How do we respond? David had to respond. He had to make a choice. What am I supposed to do with this sin that Nathan confronted me with? Usually there's three choices we make or we have to choose from, and we make one of three choices. One, we can be dismissive. We can be dismissive of it. It's brought to our attention, and we might dismiss it as something that's really not that important, or we just ignore it altogether. We pretend it's not there. We go on and live our lives and do what we want. And this might work for a little while, even for a good bit of our time on earth, but eventually it will come back to hurt us. If we dismiss other cars in our blind spots, we can ignore them for a while, but at some point we're probably going to get in an accident and somebody's going to get injured and it may be us. You can be dismissive of it, but if we ignore things in our relationships with other people for a while that are in our blind spot, 
The best that could happen is our relationships probably end up still existent but shallow. The worst that can happen is probably our relationships end up toxic and eventually devolve into having no relationship at all. And it's the same with God. That if we ignore something in our spiritual blind spot when it's brought to our attention, what happens is our hearts start to become hard to anything that's in our lives that's offensive to God and we stop listening And we stop having a relationship with God altogether because our hearts become hard. We can dismiss it, but it's to our own fault and hurt that we do this. We can be dismissive. The proper way to deal with things in our blind spot is what David does in Psalm 51. He really is confessing. But we sometimes are dismissive and don't do that. Let me give you an example of this. Let me give you two prayers One, a good example of confession, it comes from the Book of Common Prayer, 1946. I know that's small. I will read it for you. This is a prayer often used throughout much of the church today, and it says this. Some of you may have prayed this. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is nothing good in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared unto men in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of his name. Amen. A good confession almost looks like it's based on Psalm 51. The problem is compare that to this prayer, which may look like a modern prayer that many people might pray today. Instead of praying a prayer of confession, we don't pray that sometimes. People today are dismissive of the prayer that is given. And sometimes people today might pray like this. Benevolent and easygoing parents. We have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best we could. We are glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who you know are not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which, you, which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. A little bit of tongue-in-cheek, but maybe not too far off from the way that some people might approach God when confronted with sin. Dismissive not really taking it seriously, not really taking it to heart, but finding ways to dismiss it. David um, didn't do this. He took a different approach. But let's look at a second approach that some people take. Maybe you're not dismissive, but another another thing we sometimes do is get defensive. Not dismissive, but defensive. We say things like, hey, it wasn't my fault. I'm under a lot of pressure. 
hey, it wasn't my fault. If, if you didn't want me to do it, God, then you shouldn't have put those things in my path. Or as Adam said, it was the woman that you gave me. It's been this way from the very beginning that people get defensive when confronted with sin. We think, well, nobody's perfect. If David were to be defensive, he may say something like this. Look, I'm the king. Have you seen the other things that other kings do? Other kings do this all the time. They take any woman they want whenever they want. For other kings, any woman in the kingdom is not off limits to them. These people should be grateful that I'm not like that. I have been good all these years, and so I slipped up this once. I'm not that bad. Look at what other kings have done. And look what I did. Uriah died, but yes, he died in military service. He's, he's, he's loved by his family because he died in battle. And Bathsheba, yes, now she doesn't have a husband, but I took her to be my wife. And now the child she bears, if it's a son, he will be an heir to the throne of Israel. So actually, I helped her. What a good, look what I've done. What a blessing I've been. Defensive. Rationalize. It sounds foolish when I put those words in the mouth of David, but how often have those words been on our lips when we get defensive, when we're confronted with something in our spiritual blind spot? Look at all the other things I've done. Look at how bad other people are. This is not that big a deal. Sometimes the posture we can approach God. But, if being, def- but being defensive puts us in no better position than being dismissive. We've not dealt with the issue, and there's going to be further pain if we don't deal with it. There's a third option. Not dismissive, not defensive, but the third option that David chooses is to be defenseless. To be defenseless. To raise the white flag. To plead no contest. To tap out. To surrender. To admit that we are wrong. David, in the beginning of this Psalm 51, immediately recognizes his sin and that it is a sin against God. Verse 4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wait a minute. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? Yes. But ultimately his sin was against the one who made Bathsheba and Uriah the one who made the laws that called it sin. His ultimate sin was not against the creation, but the creator. Not against that which was made, but against his maker. And so he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. He was overwhelmed not by the consequences of his sin, but by the fact he had sinned. And here's the rub, I think, for us. There are times when we may not get overwhelmed until we are dealing with the consequences of our sin. David doesn't mention that at all in Psalm 51. In fact, I think we could accurately say that in reading the psalm, he would say whatever consequences he received, he deserved. It wasn't that he was overwhelmed by the consequences of his sin. He was overwhelmed by his sin by the fact that he recognized he was a sinner. 
Charles Spurgeon, famous 19th century pastor in London, of this psalm, he said this, It's not the punishment he cries out against, but the sin. Many a murderer is no more alarmed at the... Many a murderer is more alarmed at the gallows than at the murder which brought him to it. The thief loves the plunder, though he fears the prison. Not so David. He is sick of sin as sin. His loudest outcries are against the evil of his transgression and not against the painful consequences of it. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. When we hate what the Lord hates, he will soon make an end of it to our joy and peace, is what Spurgeon says. And I think it's true that many people are upset and overwhelmed perhaps by the consequences of what they've done. And so we try and make it right with other people. And so we try and assuage our guilt and get rid of it somehow. But what we sometimes stop short of in this spiritual blind spot is coming to God and admitting that it's not just the consequences that's the problem. It's the sin itself that has incurred guilt upon us that needs to be dealt with. He recognized not only that he had sinned, but that he was a sinner. Later in this psalm, David says, I am a sinner from birth. Even I've been conceived in sin. By that, he didn't mean that the very act of his mother and father coming together was a sin. What he meant was, in my very core, from my very being, from the very beginning, I am a sinner. That that sin that began in the Garden of Eden has come down to me, and that is who I am. And then he also recognizes that his only hope is to fall upon the mercy of God. And so verses 1 and 2, actually verse 1, the first two words, have mercy on me, O God. That's a pretty good prayer right there. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. If I was going to spend an hour praying just one sentence, maybe that would be it. That's not even a whole sentence. That's just, that's just part of the sentence. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Recognizing that, God, I fall completely on your mercy. And the only hope for me is your mercy. The only hope for me is your unfailing love. That's what David says. He's overwhelmed not by the consequences of what he did, not because he got caught, not because Nathan knows and he's wondering who else knows, but because he realizes God knows and God his Father who gave him so much. And if we read the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 12, you would hear the words of Nathan, the words of God said through Nathan where he says, didn't I give you everything? And he recounts that David was a humble shepherd boy, the least of the least in his family, the eighth of eight sons of Jesse, no hope in front of him except for tending sheep, and God made him the king of Israel, gave him riches, gave him power, exalted him. And then God says, if this had not been enough, I would have given you more. And yet, you've despised me by your actions. And how many of us in our lives has God blessed in such an incredible way and given so much. People we love, things we enjoy. And God might come to you and say, if it wasn't enough, I would have given you more. 
and yet you've despised me, yet you've sinned against me. It's not the consequences of your sin that I want you to be or God wants you to be overwhelmed with this morning. It's, I want us to grasp the understanding that it's sin itself against God that's the problem. Until we come to that place that we can grasp the fact that we are sinners in our core and our only hope is the mercy of God and the cross of Jesus Christ, we will never get to the place where David is in Psalm 51 which is to humbly fall defenseless before a holy God. He not only asks God to forgive him, he asks God to renew him, cleanse him, and restore him. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Take not thine Holy Spirit from me. He falls upon this grace of God, knowing that his restoration is only dependent upon God himself. My way in this morning, I was listening to Ravi Zacharias uh, uh, talking about guilt. Uh, in fact, I texted Pastor Brian. I said, you know what? Just tell people to listen to Ravi's message today and send them home. Because <laughs> Ravi's, if you haven't heard, you listen to Ravi's message from this morning. It was great about guilt and understanding it. And he used this little story in the, in the, this morning as I listened to him that I thought was helpful. He says this, a teacher wrote, uh, that famous author, Anonymous, penned these words. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I have spoiled this one. I took his sheet all soiled and blotted and gave him a new one all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried, do better now, my child. I went, came to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, do better now, my child. This idea that we come to God recognizing that as sinners, We are so impure and we ruin just about everything that we touch. And yet, through God's grace, he offers his forgiveness. He offers his restoration and his renewal to us. We approach God in a humble way. Let me close with reminding us of uh, Jesus when he talked similar about this topic. He was talking about the topic of prayer And in Luke chapter 18, he says this, says Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Dismissive and defensive, right? Dismissive and defensive. So they are revealed there's something wrong. They are dismissive and defensive. They trust in themselves that they're righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his health justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Sometimes it's the religious people with the biggest spiritual blind spots to their sin. See, if you're not familiar with the terminology of this passage, the Pharisee was one of the most religious people of the day. The tax collector would have been one of the people who was considered an outcast, unclean, the least of the least when it came to religion of the day. And Jesus said, it's the one who fell upon the mercy of God that went away justified. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, Paul said. I don't want you to be sorrowful just to be sorrowful or to be guilty just to feel guilty. It has a purpose, Paul says. Paul says godly sorrow leads to repentance, but worldly sorrow leads to death. So we should experience the sorrow of our sin, but only as it leads to repentance. And so this morning, is there a place in your life that has been a spiritual blind spot? We need the Holy Spirit. We need God's word to illuminate it for us and show us that. It was funny, a couple weeks ago, when we got these new lights installed for the first time, they're, they're great. They're not exactly done yet. So if you're wondering why it's so bright in here, we're still working out the kinks on the dimmer system. So that's not done yet. Um, but one of the things that happened with these new lights is we had all these chairs out of the room. And here's what happened. Look down at your feet right now. How many of you see a coffee stain? Maybe you don't, but here's what happened. We got all these chairs out of the room. We put all these lights on, and we went, whoa. We drink a lot of coffee. We spill a lot of coffee. Uh, No, we said, wow. Those stains look better under the other lights. Sometimes that's what happens in our lives too. Maybe you come to church on a Sunday morning and you say, whoa, my life looked better under the other lights. My life looked better before the light of the gospel and the light of Christ was shown upon it. And while that may be true, the question then naturally arises, what now do you do? What do you do now? Will you be dismissive? Will you get defensive? Or will you fall defenseless upon the mercy of God? 